the first reading is taken from Haggai, which is on page 948 in the Church Bibles, chapter 1. This is a call to build the house of the Lord. Haggai, chapter 1. In the second year of King Darius, on the first day of the six months, the word of the Lord came through to the prophet Haggai, to Haggai, to Zerubbabel, son of Shealtiel, governor of Judah, and to Joshua, son of Jehozadak. I knew this would happen. <laughs> the high priest. This is what the Lord Almighty says. These people say, this time has not yet come for the Lord's house to be built. Then the word of the Lord came through the prophet Haggai. Is it a time for you yourselves to be living in your panelled house, houses with this house remaining a ruin? Now this is what the Lord Almighty says. Give careful thought to your ways. You've planted much, but have harvested little. You eat, but you never have enough. You drink but you have your fill, you never have your fill. You put on clothes, but you are not warm. You earn wages, only to put them in a purse with holes in it. This is what the Lord Almighty says. Give careful thought to your ways. Go up into the mountains and bring down timber and build a house so that I may take pleasure in it and be honored, says the Lord. You expected much, but see it turned out to be little. What you brought home, I blew away. Why, declares the Lord Almighty, because of my house, which remains a ruin, which each of you is busy with his own house. Therefore, because of you, the heavens have withheld their dew and the earth its crops. I called for a drought on the fields and the mountains, on the grain, the new wine, the oil, and whatever the ground produces, on men and cattle, and on the labor of your hands. Then Zerubbabel, Zerubbabel, son of Shealotel, Joshua, son of Jehojajak, the high priest, and the whole remnant of the people obeyed the voice of the Lord and their God and the message of the prophet Haggai, because the Lord their God had sent him, and the people feared the Lord. Then Haggai, the Lord's messenger, gave this message of the Lord to his people. I am with you, declares the Lord. So the Lord stirred up the spirit of Zerubbabel, son of Shealtiel, governor of Judah, and the spirit of Joshua, son of Jehoshaphat, the high priest, and the spirit of the whole remnant of the people. They came and began work on the house of the Lord Almighty their God on the 24th day of the sixth month in the second year of King Darius. This is the word of the Lord. The second reading is taken from uh, Matthew chapter 6. It's it's found on page 971 in the Church Bibles, and it's verses 19 to 21, and then 24 to 34. That's Matthew chapter 6, starting at verse 19, on page 971. Do not store up for yourselves treasures on earth, where moth and rust destroy, 
and where thieves break in and steal. But store up for yourselves treasures in heaven, where moth and rust do not destroy, and where thieves do not break in and steal. For where your treasure is, there your heart will be also. No one can serve two masters. Either he will hate the one and love the other, or he will be devoted to the one and despise the other. You cannot serve both God and money. Therefore, I tell you, do not worry about your life, what you will eat or drink, or about your body, what you will wear. Is not life more important than food, and the body more important than clothes? Look at the birds of the air. They do not sow or reap or store away in barns, and yet your heavenly Father feeds them. Are you not much more valuable than they? Who of you, by worrying, can add a single hour to his life? And why do you worry about clothes? See how the lilies of the field grow. They do not labor or spin. Yet I tell you that not even Solomon in all his splendor was dressed like one of these. If that is how God clothes the grass of the field, which is here today and tomorrow is thrown into the fire, Will he not much more clothe you, O you of little faith? So do not worry, saying, What shall we eat, or what shall we drink, or what shall we wear? For the pagans run after all these things, and your heavenly Father knows that you need them. But seek first his kingdom and his righteousness, and all these things will be given to you as well. Therefore, do not worry about tomorrow, for tomorrow will worry about itself. Each day has enough trouble of its own. This is the word of the Lord. A prayer as we stand. Oh, let me hear thee speaking in accents clear and still. Above the storms of passion, the murmurs of self-will. Father God, that is our prayer for the next few minutes. Speak to us and speak to us clearly for your name's sake. Amen. Amen. Please do be seated. And uh, if you've closed your Bible, uh, do please look for Haggai again. And I'll be generous and tell you the page number because otherwise it's impossible to find. It's page number 948, 948, Haggai. And we're just beginning a a little series looking at this gem of one of the minor prophets here, page 948. Imagine in your mind's eye a daughter and her father a daughter and her father. She loves 
her father. And she wants to love him today. For he is her father. Why not? Her father, he loves his bride, his wife. She's the apple of his eye. He would do anything for her. He loves her. He's his bride. How does the daughter therefore love the father? Imagine in your mind's eye, she one day goes out into the garden, spring garden, flowers uh, blooming, and she picks a bunch of flowers. The father spots her doing this out of his study window, and his heart is warmed. He smiles. He thinks, hmm, I wonder who they're for. Maybe they're for me. Little feet padding past his study door. They're not for him, in fact. And he hears his daughter give the flowers to his bride, his wife. And he beams, he smiles from ear to ear because this daughter knows how to please her father because she, by loving his bride, has loved him because he loves his bride the most. Do you see? She gives the flowers to his wife. Question, what or whom does God, our Heavenly Father, love most in the world? I take it that it's a good question because if we want to love God as our Heavenly Father, as his children, we'll be wanting to join him in that enterprise, join him in that passion and that love. Question, what does God love in the world? Answer, he loves his church, capital C. The worldwide people of God, his full-time passion and occupation. For the church, it or she is his bride. He's head over heels in love with us. God loves his church. She is the beneficiary of all of his promises. One day, the worldwide church, the Catholic church, will make a galaxy look underpopulated with stars. There'll be so many people in her. Membership of the church is the place to be to experience every one of God's blessings. He calls the church my people with all the possessive jealousy and protection that implies. And he allows us to call him my God. And it's not blasphemy, it's belonging. It's a love affair between the God of the universe and his bride, the church. So if we ask who God loves in the world the most, the answer is the church. And Haggai 1, this lovely chapter, thank you, Don, for reading it with all those names. Haggai 1 is saying, if you love God, we really must love his bride, the church. And it'll involve more than picking a bunch of flowers from the garden. In fact, it'll affect every aspect of life, even, get this, the kinds of houses that we live in. I wonder if you spotted that from Haggai 1. But there's a problem. It's my first point if you're taking notes. The problem, procrastination and wrong priorities, verses 4 to 6. Procrastination and wrong priorities. The P's seem to work for me this week. So verse 2, this is what the Lord Almighty says. 
These people say, the time has not yet come for the Lord's house to be built. They procrastinate. They say, not yet. Later. Later. I've got other things to do. Now, the tiny book of Haggai was communicated first in 520 BC through God's prophet Haggai. God spoke to him and he spoke to his people, Israel. And at that time, the Israelites had been in exile in Babylon. And they were just beginning to trickle back into the promised land uh, near Jerusalem. And um, work had begun to rebuild the temple. You can read about that in Ezra chapters 1 and 2 if you're interested. But that work had really begun to fizzle out. Um, Not out of nervousness of an election on the horizon and what sort of tax breaks there would be, but just because of opposition. And the temple was, verse 4, our passage says, a wreck, a ruin at the time we read it. And Haggai's message is, you need to get rebuilding it. You need to get rebuilding it. And I think the book of Haggai packs quite a punch. I've just got to warn you at the beginning. And it's as hard to listen to as it is to find in the canon of Scripture, I think. So we just need to steel ourselves to hear it, make sure our hearts are soft to it. The problem in Haggai's day was that the temple was in ruins. And the importance of the temple was this. The temple was the place where God's symbolic and focused presence was going to be found. And therefore, how people kept the temple, that building, was an indication of how they were viewing the God of the universe. Now, I warned the Collises about this. They're not present to hear this slander. But imagine, for example, Freya Collis. She's at Reading University. She goes away to Reading University in term time. Imagine that Steve and Francesca leave her room to rot and go to ruin. The posters fall off the walls. They maintain the roof in the rest of the house, but not in her room. Poor old Freya. Now the point of that is, how they treat her room tells us how they treat her. That is the significance of that. It's not just real estate, it's personal. And you see in this passage here that the Israelites had let God's room, God's house, go to ruin. And it wasn't just a real estate question, it was personal. It suggested that they'd have forgotten him, the living God of the universe. They had other priorities. Have a look at verses 5 and 6. They'd become concerned for their own personal comfort and even luxury. And as is so often the case, I think, when those priorities take root, the home had become the ultimate thing for them. Uh, Maybe they'd lived for so long amongst the Babylonians people who didn't know their God, that they'd just begun to absorb their priorities and their cultural norms. They'd begun to absorb the norms of 21st century London, let's say. They'd begun to think that, yes, hmm, the home really is the Israelites' castle. They'd begun to think, yes, the home really is where the heart of the Israelite is. And if you were to look on their skybox, you'd find all the home renovation uh, programs preloaded onto it. Uh, Under the hammer and grand designs. I'm probably out of date, but you know the 
avid viewers. They, they'd been to the ideal home show. And as they commuted past the ruins of the temple, their minds were filled with, what sort of work surface should I have in the new kitchen? Would it be marble or would, would granite just go better with the oak? And you see, the Lord is saying, no, no, can't you see my house? It's in ruins. Now, applying Old Testament passages like this one is, is a bit like translating languages, I think, applying it to the present day and to our lives. We need to keep the core meaning of the passage, but we need to use the vocabulary that the New Testament provides. So are, are you with me? Let's try and translate the concept of temple. It'll give us an idea of where we're going, okay? Temple. Now, in Jesus' day, if we were to fast forward to then, the temple had been destroyed. It had been razed to the ground, ruined. There was no longer any sacred space after the temple was destroyed, no precious postcode in the world, no place that's more holy than another. Except, you find, it's not a postcode who's holy, it's a person who's holy. The Lord Jesus Christ comes to earth. He's God incarnate. John 1 says he tabernacled or literally templed amongst us. He was the living, walking, talking temple of God. If you wanted to need, know what God is like, you'd meet him and watch him. He became the temple. Do you remember those debates in the Gospels? He said, I'll... Uh, I'll, rebuild the, I'll destroy this temple and rebuild it again in three days. And he was talking about his own body. He had become the temple. But then Jesus ascends to heaven. I haven't met him in person, physically. I doubt you have. He's not here physically. But what he does is he gives his focused, powerful presence, the Spirit, the Holy Spirit, not to a building, the temple, but to the church, to people. And so in 1 Peter, the Apostle Peter can talk about the church, you and I today, as being the New Testament temple of God. He says, we are living stones, each one of us bricks come together, being built up as a spiritual house. We are the New Testament temple of God. So that's the translation work done. Let me just simplify it for us. In New Testament speak, when we read about the temple, we're reading about the church the people of God. We're reading about this, us, here on a Sunday and through the rest of the week. And so when God says here in Haggai 1, rebuild the temple, he doesn't say, start doing some bricks and mortar. He says, let's do some human resources. He doesn't say, let's get into construction. He says, let's get into people. Let's build the people of God, the church. Please don't leave my church, my bride, my love, my passion, in a state of ruin with other priorities and procrastination. So that's the problem, procrastination, other priorities. What's the solution? Here it is. In a word, it's ponder. Another P, ponder. This is in verses 5 and 7. Did you notice both of those verses are absolutely identical to one another? Verses 5 and 7. I take it that means they're important. I'll read This is what the Lord Almighty says, give careful thought to your ways. In other words, the Lord says to us this morning, take a step back and think. Think about whether our actions 
lead to the outcomes we hope for. Give careful thought to your ways. It says give careful thought. It's not something to rush. It's something we'll need a bit of space and a cup of tea, and if you can find one, a beard to stroke. It's a thoughtful thing. He's not asking for knee-jerk, quick microwave decisions. He's asking for percolated, oak-barrel-aged decisions. Give careful thought to your ways. Slow down and think. Ponder, he says. And then, like a gentle management consultant, if that's not an oxymoron, he stoops to the Lord, to our people's level, to our level, and he helps us assess how life is going. And he says this in verse 6. You've planted much, I can see that, but you've harvested little. You eat, but never have enough. You drink, but never have your fill. You put on clothes, you're not warm. You earn wages, and don't you love this? Only to put them in a purse with holes in it. Did you see their aim was their own comfort and luxury? They were breaking their backs, working crazy hours, burning the candle at both ends. Why? All so that they could afford the Ocado delivery and the Bowdoin mail order and even put some money away for the pension pot plan. But it seemed the more they worked, the slimmer the rewards were. You know, as as, uh, the husband checked how the pension stocks and shares, they were quite low. Lower than they'd expected for this time of year. And the Lord comes alongside the people and says, give careful thought to your ways. Are you sure what you're doing makes sense? He's like a wise man watching a, a fool trying to collect water from a stream using a sieve. And he says, give careful thought to your ways. It doesn't seem to be holding much water. The purse doesn't seem to be holding much money. And he explains more in verse 9. We need this explanation. You expected much, but see, it turned out to be little. What you brought home, I blew away. Why? This is the key thing. Why? Because of my house, the temple, which remains a ruin, while each one of you, us, is busy with his own house. See, it seemed that God had intervened. He'd rendered their purses leaky. He'd made the property value plummet. He'd rendered the pension pot slightly leaky. So that all that these people were living for, well, they found that they were poorer than they'd expected. And he says, give careful thought to your ways. Are you really satisfied? And I think the reason he does this is that they were idolizing these things. Let me tell you, there is nothing wrong with Ocado or Bowdoin or house renovations. But there's something wrong with those things when, for us, they become ultimate things, things we couldn't live, as we say, without. And the Lord never allows us to hang on to an idol. Imagine the little daughter we began with. Imagine she doesn't pluck some flowers at the beginning, but she goes to the medicine cabinet, which she can now reach, and plucks a powerful medicine out of there, something she really shouldn't have. And she is delighted with it. It's shiny. It's quite weighty. This is her new toy. It's going to be her obsession for today. Wonderful. What will her father do when he sees her? Won't he lovingly say, no, darling, you need to put that down. 
And then when she refuses, won't he lovingly prize her fingers off it and take it away? Because he knows that medicine is not for her. It's going to damage her health. And that is what the living Lord does with us. And I'm so slow to believe this myself, honestly. But he tells us to put idols down, the idol of comfort and luxury and homes and the cars we drive and the rest of it. And he says, don't, don't live for these things. They won't satisfy. And if we refuse, he, he, he gently prizes our fingers off them. So you see, for the people of Haggai's day, they were worshipping comfort. Sometimes in that situation, he takes away the comfort. It's like chasing, trying to catch a pigeon in Trafalgar Square. Could never catch it. Um, If we worship family harmony, sometimes there's a whole series of family arguments. The holidays is a, a disaster. If we worship wealth and financial security, sometimes the pension pot does plummet. And it's his loving, fatherly way of prizing our fingers off that damaging idol and saying, it's not for you. It's not going to satisfy you. I won't give my glory to another. Seek first my kingdom and my righteousness. And all these things, don't worry about them. They'll be given to you, but don't prioritize them, please. He says, ponder. Give careful thought to your ways. And notice the giveaway mark of idolatry here. I was fascinated by this this last week. It's not just that they loved their homes. That's okay. It's that they love their homes more than the temple. It's a relative thing. Do you see what he's saying when we translate that into today's language? If we love our homes or anything else for that matter more than the church, more than his bride, his love, his passion, well, that's idolatry, he says. So part one of the solution is ponder. Give careful thought to your way. Secondly, quite simply, please the Lord, verse 8. He says, take a hike up the mountains and bring down timber, and build the temple. Why? So that I may take pleasure in it, and be honored, says the Lord. I wonder if you know unpredictable people in your life. Maybe you are one. But unpredictable people are very hard to please, in my experience. When it comes to their birthday, it's a terrible speculative guessing game, isn't it? I have no idea what to buy him or her. Last year, he liked that. Next year, who knows? But the Lord is not unpredictable. He tells us how to please him. And he's not hard to read. He says to the people in Haggai, say, just rebuild my temple. That'll give me great pleasure. That'll put a smile on my face. I'd love that for my birthday. He says to us today, prioritize my bride, the church, one another. I'd love that for my birthday. It's a way of him saying, put my concerns first, and I'll look after you. Seek first my kingdom. Now, before we go any further, I think I need to dispel any misunderstandings as to what prioritizing the church might mean. I imagined myself listening to my own sermon and all sorts of worries going through my mind. Would I have to get ordained? Oh, no, that's already happened. No, not everyone needs to get ordained. That's not what it means to prioritize the church. Some people will want to, and it will be right for them to. We don't have to become church-y, churchy. Nothing wrong with hymns and stained glass and beautiful buildings, but we don't have to love all of that stuff to prioritize God's church. 
What it means is giving the best and the first of our energy and time and money to the church, to God's bride. That's what it means. And it's a very hard task, I think, in a world in the West where the home is a kind of showcase for how well I've done in the world. It's quite hard to divert resources away from my showcase front room to people who aren't even my blood family to the church. People won't understand that. The IKEA catalogue has such a pull. I remember hearing this chapter preached on at our old church a couple of years ago vividly, and I'll tell you why I remember it so clearly. It's because Katie and I were in the middle of renovating a house in Oxford. Can you believe our luck, listening to a sermon like this in the middle of renovating our house? Now, we hadn't used wooden paneling, but we'd used everything else. You know, banisters, laid the floors, new kitchen, bathroom, everything. And here comes Haggai. Oh, my goodness me. Do you know it was a hard message to hear, but it was a really good one for us to hear. Because it made us ask all sorts of questions. Questions like, do we love our home more than God's people in the local church? Questions like, will we use our home for God's church, God's bride? Questions like, will all my financial outgoings, these banisters and wooden floors, are they going to stop my giving to the church? Are we now giving less than we were? Hard questions, but good questions. It says, ponder please the Lord. And we need a solution, finally, and it's this. Be provoked by God's promise. Be provoked by God's promise, verses 13 to 14. Did you notice as we had it read from Don what really made the change for God's people? We have to wait almost to the very end of the chapter until we read those words, the people came and began to work on the house of the Lord Almighty, their God. They actually did it. They left their wooden paneling and prioritized God's house. What made the difference? Did you spot it? Verse 13, Haggai says something that proves to be Prozac, an energy drink, and a New Year's resolution all wrapped into one and gets the people up and out and doing what the Lord wants. What is it? He doesn't say, now I'm cross, I'm going to count to ten, go and do it. He doesn't say, I'm going to burn you up in a ball of fire unless you do it. What does he say? Then Haggai, the Lord's messenger, gave this message of the Lord to the people. I am with you, declares the Lord. I am with you. So they began work on the temple. And that would get you out rebuilding the temple, wouldn't it? I remember as a young child with my parents, when they'd asked me to do something I was quite nervous about doing, I would dig my heels in and I would refuse and I'd kick and scream and say no. But then the game changer was this, when one of them said, don't worry, John, I'll come with you. I'll come with you. Well, then it's no problem. It's my dad, he's going to be with me. And when dad comes, he brings all his resources and, as I thought at that stage, intelligence, abilities. I'll be safe. I'm with you. And so the promise provokes me to obey. And it was the same in Haggai's day. Now, perhaps off the back of this sermon, one of us decides, I could give some of my time to helping in children's church on a Sunday morning, the chaos over there. That'll be a costly decision, time-wise, 
energy-wise, involves praying for them, preparing, coming to church again twice on a Sunday to hear the sermon in the evening. That's costly. Loving God the Father by loving his bride, the church. What does God say to you? He says, I am with you as you do that. It may be that you decide to commit relationally to someone you find very difficult at church, and there are a few of us like that. Someone really draining. Someone you, you commit not just to see them on a Sunday of a coffee, but midweek even. Costly. What does the Lord say to you? He says, I'm with you as you love me by loving my bride, the church. Maybe we do have a renovation project on, new kitchen. Maybe it does involve just shifting some of our finances towards the church or the persecuted church at the moment instead of the show home house. That's scary. That's countercultural. That's radical. What does the Lord say to you? He says, I am with you as you love me by loving my bride. That's the message of Haggai 1. It's hard-hitting. In a way, I was nervous preaching it, but I need to hear it as much as anyone. Shall we pray? Heavenly Father, we've, well, I've spoken a lot of things and we've listened to a lot of things, and I pray that same prayer we prayed at the beginning. Please would you have spoken clearly to us above the noises of our passions and enable us to hear in such a way that we delight to obey for your name's sake. Amen.